As Melinda comes to read this, this scripture lesson out of Second Peter, I know it's an unusual place, but see if in the midst of this you can find the question that is being asked of a people that were in an exceptionally chaotic, abusive time. But this question needs to ring out for us. See if you can find it in this reading. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, While you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish. Holy wisdom, holy word. Now as we come to the gospel lesson, uh, again, these are very familiar words, and we, we dealt with these just about a month and a half ago. But listen again, and with peace in mind, what is it that we're being called to have and to offer? The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside And all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. I was over the cabin last Friday, and uh, occasionally what I'll do there is that becomes a Sabbath time for me. And I was back into one of my favorite books of one of my favorite theologians, Thomas Oden, and was studying again as we, as we look at Christmas and as we look at Advent, the whole idea of God. It's such a difficult concept, this this God that is so huge and so much a part of creation, and a matter of fact, as creator. And what I kept going back to was the two words that he said, that God said to Moses, to the angel in the burning bush. As Moses said, who should I tell sent me? And the response out of the bush was, I am. Tell them that I am sent you. And I kept looking at that name and thinking this is not the I was. This is not the I will be. This is I am. The constant presence of God. 
And then the word that kept coming to mind as I was looking out over the, the lake and over the, the trees was, now just dwell. Just dwell in that constant, present presence. And then as I was looking at the sermon for today, I kept thinking about Mary and Joseph and how much we feel the need to romanticize everything during this season. And I'm all about romanticizing the season. Otherwise, it just becomes too overwhelming. But if we romanticize it to a point, we will forget about what may have really happened. And I I asked the first service to tell me what they knew about Joseph and what they knew about Joseph. We, We know so little, and yet what we can see and we can perceive and we can assume is a great deal by how he responded to so many things. I mean, he was obviously a man of deep integrity and a man of deep faith. He was a, he was a person who had a, a business as not just a carpenter, but probably as a builder. That's how the more accurate translation of the word is he probably did masonry work and, and woodwork and all kinds of work and probably worked a lot three miles away from Nazareth in Sepphoris, this huge community that was being rebuilt. He was probably a little older and probably had a life of pretty significant peace in a time of chaos because he was secure. And he was probably sought after as a potential husband. And that brings us to Mary. We forget that Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old. I have a 14-year-old at home. I cannot even begin to imagine what it would be like. But the, but the rules of the time were that you set up, the parents' role was to find that right spouse for them. And this couple, this, these parents of Mary had to have looked at Joseph and thought, perfect. And so they arranged the marriage as arrangements happened and they became betrothed, which is so much more than engaged. It is a legal contract between two parties. And I don't just mean the husband and wife but the families themselves who come into this contractual relationship of being married. And it wasn't always a satisfactory situation, but in this case, it certainly seemed to be. And Mary obviously was a a person of deep integrity and, and a person of faith and clearly knew her role in society at that point. So probably was somewhat at peace. Then all heaven broke loose. And suddenly she sees a vision, and we remember the vision, and you will hear very specifically the words of that vision as Dorothy and I sing it next week. And that will be a part of the sermon. But a vision that says you will bear a son, a child, and oh, by the way, it means you're not going to be married when it happens. And the law was very clear that Joseph's role at that point was once he found out that she was pregnant, he was to, along with all of the other elder men in the community, take her, literally dragging her, out to the outskirts of the town because they would not spill blood in the holiness of the community. And each one would lift a stone and kill her by stoning her to death. Wow. But Joseph... Refused. For part of his own heart was a heart of life, not a 
heart of death. And somehow in the midst of that, he found peace there. What we don't know is when they got married, but they got married. But what we do know is then they were called by Rome to take an incredibly long 157-mile journey from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. It would have been 65 miles if they'd just gone straight, but they couldn't because the law said they could not set foot on Samaritan soil. And so instead, they took off to the east, climbed the hills, dropped down into the Jordan River Valley. Not a fun trip in and of itself. Now imagine, friends, eight months pregnant on the back of a donkey. And you begin to get the idea. You want to talk about peace? Really? And then 80 miles down the Jordan River Valley, only to climb again 1,200 feet up and over toward Jericho and then to Jerusalem and then turn south toward Bethlehem, a little, tiny, hovel, dirty, filthy, dusty town that at this point was filled with strangers. And then she gives birth. And as much as we're going to sing away in the manger and make it this beautiful scene, it was anything but beautiful. One of the most difficult difficult, challenging places to give birth, and let's remember, to her firstborn. No hospitals, no doctors, very little help, if any. And where in the world do we find peace in this? But we do. We do. Because in the midst of that, these two were of deep, deep faith. In the midst of the overwhelming challenges, these two kept to their faith, guided by something much greater than themselves to allow themselves to be placed in this role of servants. And there they were, even then in peace. Now, I grew up in the late 60s and early 70s where this yeah, I'll get you the pictures of the platform shoes and the multiple plaids. But I did. I grew up. And when we did this, it was peace being hopefully an absence of war, was it not? I remember clearly and, and started singing this and I couldn't get it out of my head because it's one of those tunes. All we are saying is give peace a chance. Remember that tune? How could you forget it? Those that grew up in this time. Peace was so tied to war that we couldn't separate these two. And it became the definitive word as the antithesis to war. When really, if you think about peace, it's not necessarily about war. Maybe more accurately, peace is the absence of chaos. Now think about that for a second. Or might it be the antithesis to chaos? I mean, think about your own life for a second. When have been those times where you have felt least at peace? Weren't there times of deep chaos, the swirling as we heard the story at the beginning of time of the tohu avohu, the nothingness, where everything is in confusion until God speaks and suddenly order begins to be established? 
There's not one person in this sanctuary today that at some point in their life, if not today, even today, have felt some of that confusion and lostness and nothingness and chaos. But like anything having to do with peace, peace always comes at a cost. To move beyond that point of confusion and nothingness and chaos, we have to make choices about cost. Don't we? Doesn't peace always come at a cost of choices? And so my question to you this morning, as you heard that Second Peter scripture, is if you are to be godly, if you are to live lives apart from chaos or beyond chaos, might God, as God did with Mary and Joseph, seek to be penetrating into you somehow to help you come to terms with and maybe, maybe even overcome the chaos. Again, every single one of us is dealing with it. Unless you're much holier than any of us. But even then. But the beauty of being in a community of faith is that we truly are never alone. If we allow others to experience with us the chaos that we may be feeling, if we allow others to see a little more deeply in our souls, if we allow others to surround us, as I know Tom and Shannon are absolutely going to need sisters and brothers and aunts and uncles and grandparents as they step into this absolutely new point in their life, but the problem is, the problem is very few churches know how to do this. To trust each other enough to name the chaos of their lives and to share with each other enough, deep enough to allow others to help them carry it. These two candles, this candle of hope, says to us that we can have hope and we are to offer hope. This second candle of peace says that we can have peace and we are to offer it to others. So where, friends, do you need it? Is it in your family? Is it in your job? Is it in your joblessness? Is it in your community? Is it in your neighborhood? Is it in your heart? But God is ready to help penetrate that and bring peace. And as that happens, we look beyond ourselves. Where in our church, where in our neighborhood, where in our surrounding community, where in the world is there a need for deep peace? As you come forward for communion this morning, I ask you to ask yourself that question. And as you come, I invite you to stop and stand at the altar rails or just as you come, prepare yourselves for this time of examination of where you need peace in the midst of the chaos in you and where you might offer it to others. This is a time of peace. Let's not get so caught up in the frenzy.
that we forget the peace. Will you pray with me? God, you are a God of order. You continually seek to bring it to us. You're a God that seeks peace at every level, not only in our lives, but in the world. And yet we know that peace always comes at a cost. Help us be willing. Help us be willing to find that peace, to bring that peace, no matter the cost. All this we ask in the powerful name of the one who showed us how, Jesus Christ. Amen.